Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today we're doing something a little differently. We're recording in my backyard here in Chicago, and I have Dr. Dave with me, and we're smoking cigars and drinking Coval bourbon. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. I really appreciate it. So why don't you remind listeners, you were on episode 25 when we talked about Generations, the book in American history, and why don't you, again, elaborate on your background in history? Yeah, so... I did my undergrad at Elmhurst College in history, and then my master's at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. Um, currently, I'm at the University of Illinois Chicago, and my research right now, I have two projects that I'm working on. One of them is focusing on like eugenic law and jurisprudence in the progressive era, and then the other one is looking at this like expansion of the disability rights movement and the impact of like radical left presses and the Socialist Party in the 60s and 70s as being the like platform for these disability activists in the 80s and 90s but traditionally i'm trained as a like historian of social movements african-american history american 20th century particularly from like the progressive era to the 1960s yeah it's a lot there a lot there yeah 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 so dave and i we work together in particular on thursday nights at a bar called lincoln station thursday crew let's go thursday crew we just we just have a great time and uh a lot of times we get into these discussions about history where, you know, something's just on my mind and I'm like, hey, Dave, what do you think about Eleanor Roosevelt? What do you think about, you know, this or that and that? And it's cool to get someone, because I love history so much, just to get someone who's arm's length for me, their opinion, because they're a historian. Yeah. It's so awesome. So we got to have Dr. Dave back on the podcast. And I wanted, the first question I wanted to ask you is... What do you think about what's going on right now with like taking down statues of historical figures or historical events? What, what's your opinion on that? So um, I feel like I share the same sentiment with a lot of historians right now in the field, which is that there's a place for history uh-huh. and that that place is both within like the classroom and teaching and education and then also for like a more popular audience largely within museums, and that a lot of these public statues that are up, they're creating this controversy when there shouldn't be any controversy, right? So we look at these civil rights, or the the Civil War Confederate generals and um, Confederate monuments throughout the South. Most of these are put up, like, way past the end of the war. They're put up in, like, memorialization of this, like, lost cause narrative, which is intrinsically tied to this racist movement in the turn of the century. So to me, there's like, those should no question be taken down. I'm totally on board with all of that. After spending time in Charleston, my apartment down there was a block away from this giant statue of John C. Calhoun, who was a huge, huge uh, proponent of slavery. He was a huge racist. Huge racist. Huge. Horrible, horrible horrible human being. (laughs) Like, I know historically it's hard, you know, go back and judge historical figures for their time, but it was just like... I mean, this is a man who thought that there was a very clear distinction between, like, a, a good race and a not, and, like, a tainted race. And he's saying this in writings and within, like, yeah. Congress. And you're sitting there. Why, why memorialize that, right? Why have that sentiment be something that you elevate above the rest of the city and have it overlook this, this place of, like, racial conflict? Where a lot of the statues put up to kind of, like, like, of the emancipated people like to rub it in their faces like yeah you guys are free but 
we still love these people or we still believe in this or I don't know. Yeah, so there's a, there's a historian, David Blight, um, who does a lot of this like post-Confederacy lost cause narrative. Um, he has a book, Race and Reunion, which is wonderful, highly recommend it. And one of the points within that book and is that these like this post-war con- resurgence of this like Confederate um, memorialization doesn't come from the men who fought largely because the men who fought are being suppressed within like this union occupied south it's you see this rise in like the daughters of the confederacy right so it's the wives the really? daughter yeah so it's a very like gendered movement to and it the original claim is to oh memorialize our fathers our brothers who died in this yeah. conflict but when you really look into it it's largely just a plat- like a a platform that doesn't have any legs on it to show that like we do want to support this white supremacist notion within the country, specifically within the South. So you see that rise right around the like early 1910s is like there's a resurgence. And then there's like another okay. huge resurgence right around the civil rights movement. And that is totally mm. that, right? It's 100% showing that there yeah. is still this notion of white supremacy in our country and that we, within, we as in the, like the Southern racist movements, these like Southern Dixiecrats, are saying like no we want this very specific type of history to be identifiable with our state with our city with our region okay yeah so what was it like going to school in charleston and like do you see a bunch of confederate flags everywhere or like what what was that like yeah it was wild isn't, was it, isn't it crazy kind of weird though too to put up a flag with pride and it's like the losing team yeah like you wouldn't right very strange. Very, very strange. Why, why would you want to put up the losing team? And now we're a bunch of Yankees, and you're Yankee going down there, sort of. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, I even right when I got down there, there was even that like kind of conversation with people. You know, within my like academic circles, it was very, you know, progressive left. I had a lot of allies, but um, whenever I met anyone else, it was like, oh, you're just like a northern Yankee from Chicago. You're just like, we got, you, we can hear your accent. We like very obviously Chicago. You, you wear this on your show, like on your sleeve. And um, people down there do the same thing, but it's just with this very, like, racist, strange symbol that still, even, like, to this day, is a really important part of a lot of people's lives down there. Yeah. And I came in right after the uh, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church. Where That's where, like, uh, was that Dylan Roof? Yeah, Dylan Roof. Up, yeah. Like, 13 people uh, were killed? Nine. Nine? Yeah. Okay. And walked into a church heart of downtown Charleston and I mean the church is directly across the street from this John C. Calhoun statue right and um, like brutally in an act of like deliberate racism killed nine black churchgoers and was publishing this manifesto on this like master race this master white race and I came in like right after that So I saw the city and the state kind of dealing with this. I'm taking down the Confederate flag at the state capitol. Yeah. And there's this, like, sense, you know, air quote sense of unity with, oh, people were going to march over the the bridge together holding hands and showing that we, like, have this community together. But it was largely just something that was forgotten very quickly. I mean, the, the, the actual racist base within Charleston was still there, and it still is there today. Um, and there's a lot of problems in Charleston that need to be fixed to this day. But everyone, you know, they went out and they did their march across the bridge. And they said, like, we solved it. We created unity. We created community. <laughs> we we walked across the bridge. We, yeah. We held hands with someone. 
<laughs> we held hands and walked. Um, and it's that idea of like taking that first step, but then never going further, right? Okay. And I see a lot of that right now with these protests that are going on today. There's people that seem like they're taking that first step, and then they're not going further. They're not actually... So what, what is the next step? So, I mean, there's a slew of steps, right? Yeah. So as a historian, I... Well, in Charleston, I, I worked um, with a race and social justice initiative, and one of our big projects that we did was a disparities report in which we identified like local disparities within the state and showed that like created a, a comprehensive document it's available online we have print copies of it and we sent it to state representatives saying like these are the areas in which you, if you actually care change needs to happen so we had housing education labor um like medicine access to food things like that and in charleston you see this horrible horrible gentrification of the downtown specifically around the college um, you have a service industry that's largely dominated by African-American workers in the service of white tourists. You see a very clear disparity between public education and private school within like the constructs of race. So a lot of African-American students are being sent to these underfunded public schools while their white counterparts are being sent to these you know, million, million dollar funded charter schools or private schools. Okay. And we were just saying to state representatives, if you actually want to create change, then these are some of the areas that like change needs to happen first, right? Because like change isn't going to happen tomorrow, right? But we can start tomorrow. We yeah. can take that first step tomorrow, or today, or today, right? <laughs> and that first step needs to be an, like an understanding that there is still a problem, mm -hmm. and that the problem can be fixed, and that we shouldn't just like give up because it seems difficult. Do you think part of the resistance to some of the change is? people attaching their own like personal worth with like the way something is right now and changing that is almost like an like a personal attack on them and their lives in a way like you should f feel guilty and you're evil and you're like do you think a lot of that has to do with the reluctance for change yeah because a lot of this stuff seems pretty straightforward yeah and so this is like a really big point that I took away from my time in Charleston. And it was, I mean, that exact point, right? So we have these local groups down there who are flying the Confederate flag. And some of them, they are very conscious of what this means. And then some of them, it's truly like to them a symbol of local pride, right? Right. Um, and when someone is coming into their community, oftentimes not a part of their community and saying oh this is just going to be changed and is labeling this whole community as racist or bad or evil um yeah. it is this like a front on an identity but that's where the work that i had tried to do down there was educating people that know this is what the symbol means and this is what you're doing to people and it doesn't make you a bad person for not understanding that it what happens is that when you're reluctant to understand that then that's where the problem starts okay. is like if you're willing to sit down and have a conversation right then great then we can talk about things and we can slowly work past it i'm not trying to frame this whole community or region or like identity as wholly bad as long as they're open to some type of change or some type of understanding or conversation the problem was is that all of this got so tied to personal identity that people just immediately shut down i feel like people do that with politics though they attach oh. their personal oh, yeah. self-worth to to this party or that party or that cause it's like yeah 100 percent 
today I was watching, I've been, I like YouTube a lot. So during, during the whole like stay at home order and, and now we have less things to do. I haven't really been watching Netflix or movies. I've been watching like yeah. history clips and documentaries on YouTube. And this one I came across recently is by the Smithsonian Channel and they do Aerial America. So it's like all like drone footage of like cities and, and states. That's cool. And today I was watching South Carolina. Yeah. And they showed like Charleston and like some of these. Have you ever toured like a plantation and seen like slave houses and stuff? So this is a great topic. Um, Charleston has like a ton of plantations that you can visit, right? And almost all of them are like shockingly bad because they create this like false false narrative this lost cause narrative that i'm talking about where the most famous one and the one that i would recommend like holy is mcleod plantation they treat the subject matter like very seriously they show you the slave quarters and they don't hold back on like they're talking about slavery and this institution within the country but so many others i have not found another one in the state they all want to show the dresses and the garden and the big house oh, and like yeah. talk about this gone with the wind type, you know, image of America that a lot of people are interested in. But A, it ignores the entire point of these plantations, right, to their core. Because they're yeah, not Yeah, I mean, there. if you're going, I would imagine you should get the whole spectrum of what happened on this particular land and everything. Right, right. especially when the land, the point of the land was to exploit free labor. That's the point of the land. So when you take away that part of the land and you just talk about the garden or the big house, that's ignoring the whole point of, the, of why that's there in the first place. Mm-hmm. It just, there's no, it wouldn't have been there if there hadn't been a, a access to this like labor source. So, so then part of the, part of the documentary, they, they were talking about how like the Union Army, when they rolled through, <laughs> who just torch all the houses. Yeah. Yeah. So the famous story with that is uh like Sherman's March to the Sea. Yeah. Yeah. He went south. Yeah, was, elaborate on that. Yeah. So um General Sherman, a, a Union general, marched down from like across the Mason Dixon and then just like straight across the south basically. I think he started in I want to say he started in Mississippi. I could be wrong. Just I probably shouldn't be wrong on that. But I think it's Mississippi. And the idea was he was going to go into all of these communities and okay. liberate the, like, the slave-owning plantations, communities, cities, um, ta- small towns. Didn't really have the resources to, like, fund or protect the people he was freeing, but had said, like, yeah, you could follow the army, I guess, and just marched directly across the country to, to, um, to the Atlantic and just burnt everything. And the idea was this scorched-earth military tactic of I don't want to leave anything there for the Confederate army to be able to use. Yeah. So I'm just going to destroy it. Which isn't, he's not the only general to ever oh, employ no, that, of course. I mean, this, yeah. th- these ideas, they go back, like, forever. You, right. If you look back at Roman and Greek, like, armies, they do similar things with yeah. a lot of communities, right? And then there's a huge, like, usage of this with the Russians in World War II. Like, it's the scorched earth tactic really becomes known with like this Russian and German conflict within the, uh, isn't that what, uh, like the Russians did to Napoleon as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And it's this idea of just like, we're just going to destroy the farm and then retreat. And then now the occupying army has no access to food or shelter 
and they have to live in a Russian winter, so that's going to suck. Like, and that's what Sherman tried to employ in the South. And then there was, I want to, I think it was Savannah, and there might be one other city. I know Savannah for sure. Um, he was so enamored with like the beauty and the architecture of the city that he didn't burn it, but he occupied it. And he goes across South, liberates these these communities, destroys a lot of cities, and tries to create attempts to create a foundation for it to be rebuilt with a like pro-union pro-north largely african-american based like political group movement coming okay. out of this rejection of like the southern confederate ideology right what do you think about that like we mentioned it before on the last episode of like reconstruction mm -hmm. and i you know i don't know as much about reconstruction as i probably should but isn't that tough to try to like, so the South loses and then the union basically just comes in and is like, we're just taking over. And like anybody taking over a territory and not, I'm sure they weren't really listening to like, hey, what do you guys want? We understand that yeah. we yeah. just fought our brothers and, you know, yeah. and that's so you can kind of see the resentment there too, right? Right. And then, I mean, this goes back to the point that you had made earlier about people being tied to these ideas, right? So... Now it's not just an ideology. Now it's, you're literally burning my home. You're burning right. my town. You're destroying everything. Um, so that creates like even more resentment to this movement. Yeah. And on one hand, the idea is like, that's good. Like, they're, you tried to like secede from the country in the name of slavery. That was the, the entire point of your movement. What do you think about people... I, I call these people well actually guys. Where where you know like well, the Civil War wasn't actually about slavery, it was about secession and states' rights and taxes and economics. Like what do you what do yeah. you think about that? So that's where I would go back to my ver like very first point on that this whole idea, everything we're talking about when it comes to this like movement and how we should consider it, comes back to education. Because that's just wholly and ignorantly wrong to say that. Like, that's just not what it was. Because at, at the foundation, the whole economy was based on slavery and free labor. Right. And when you look at the Constitution of the South, that's like the foundation principle is the preservation of the institution of slavery. It's not about anything else. That's what it's about. But people are trying to be able to maintain that ideology that we're talking about, that Southern, like Gone with the Wind, you know, courteous... Like Southern gentlemen, yeah. genteel, like... And they're trying to preserve that without being labeled a racist. And how they do that is then they educate their, like, younger generations that, oh, the Civil War wasn't just about this. It was about all these other things. Um, when in reality, the Civil War was wholly about this and these other things were just kind of attached on to it afterwards, okay. right? It was like, those are issues that would never in a million years lead to secession, ever. Those are things yeah. that you would combat in congress slavery is something that would lead to secession and that's the foundational principle of yeah. the war and as as america is expanding west and creating new states that's where the they don't the union doesn't want slavery to spread to right. other areas and, right yeah right and the south wants to again maintain it and say that for every state that's free we're allowed our slave state in the name of this like economic superiority, right? And they want to maintain free labor because free labor is just an increase in profit. Could you also say the reason why 
they were so dependent on free labor is because they didn't develop industrially like the north or like other countries that were doing so they were already behind economically right yeah i mean definitely i think that the development and the infrastructure of the south is like something that's discussed all the time in like textbooks and like high school education they didn't have enough railroads to get around or whatever and that's true but again it comes back it, it wasn't true because they tried and failed it was because they just never wanted to try because they, they just had this source, and they just felt like they didn't need to ever And they were making lots, lots of, money. of money. Lots of lots money. Lots and lots of money. The, so the, the irony of it is that very few were making lots of money. There's, in the South, pre, and I mean still today, post-Civil War, there's a very, 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 very poor white community that like, fundamentally still identifies with this like southern largely racist ideology from this from this post-civil war world and um it's i heard someone once explain it this way the the poor whites pre and post and during the civil war they wanted to maintain the institution even though they weren't necessarily benefiting from it not because you know they just wanted their community to have money it was because it was that i'm like that american dream of I too one day can get there. Yeah. And I too one day can own a slave. And I too one day can get myself to a point where I have this economic freedom. So even though I'm poor right now, and even though I don't own anybody right now, the option is there for me. And that option was enough to fight for. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, but still kind of in the Civil War, what do you think of Ulysses S. Grant? I feel like I feel like I hear different things about him. Yeah. I mean there's so many of these like union generals that uh-huh. and these civil war soldiers that the irony of the situation is that people always try to make these distinctions for the south and say like oh it wasn't about this or wasn't about that where the distinctions really can be made for these like northern men who a lot of them were fighting because they believed in what they saw as like the sanctity of the union uh-huh. and they didn't, weren't necessarily pro african-american rights or it wasn't that they were against it but it wasn't that it was like a foundational principle to their life right they weren't these northern abolitionists who were like coming down to fight and this was their point they were fighting because they were they saw this secession as an act of um like being a traitor and yeah. they're like we're going to suppress the traitors in the south in the name of america and there's a lot of that with grant even sherman to a certain extent um, earlier in their career, I, I mean, Grant's just like a cigar smoking drinker who, like, know, like we're doing right now, like we're doing, so, you know, <laughs> certain extent, man after my own heart in that some, regard. Some Northern men up <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, didn't take any shit, was just comfortable with his decisions, whether they'd be right or wrong. He was going to do them his way. So what, what was his presidency like? A lot of alcohol, a lot of drinking. <laughs> Um, no, his his president. Well, he was like the first one to, after the presidency, make money, like touring, and mm-hmm. he wrote a memoir, and he's he's known right. more for that rather than his presidency. It feels like right. Right, and there's a lot within his presidency of like this expansion to the West. Still, there's a lot of that going on, and like kind of creating and establishing like this this new infrastructure out in these territories and this, like, the new country. And there's, like, so much history that can go back to that on whether the way that that was handled was right or wrong. 
How so? What do you mean by with like indigenous? So yeah. yeah. So like uh, a lot of indi- a lot of pushing people onto is like reservations. When, what years was his presidency? Is that like eighteen eighties? Yeah. Late seventies, maybe. Maybe late seventies. Yeah, it's like ten years after, eight years after the Civil War. Civil War sixty five. Yeah. So it's there's a presidency, and that yeah, it's like would have been late seventies. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I'm so bad with my president dates. I'm like trash at it. It's like. I like never ever got into the like the president biographies just because it was never anything that I like worked on really. So they're always okay. oddly just this like tangent to my work where I like kind of don't pay that much attention to them unless there's like laws being created that I need to cite. <laughs> and then even then it's just like I got that and then I move on from it. Um, now you have uh, you've told me you have like how many books laying around and they're all like research and they're thick and oh uh, it's hundreds. So I just moved to a new apartment. And was the hardest thing moving all your books? Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, so it was in, the books that made it into my new apartment. There was 13 boxes full. Um, How big are these boxes? They're, we don't have the visual component anymore, but they're like, they're, I mean, they're big boxes. Okay, yeah, you're yeah. like uh, showing me it's a pretty big box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Each box probably weighed like, like 50 pounds. So, so you, you got your workout for the week. Yeah, I got my workout for a while. <laughs> and then I brought, like, eight boxes back to my parents' house just because it was I didn't have room for them. And then at my parents' house, there's also, like, another 200 books. So right now in my apartment, there's probably, like, between 300 and 500, I'd have to count, books. And then I probably brought home another, like, 150-ish. And then at home, there's probably another, like, 200, 300-ish. Jeez. Yeah, it's out of control. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta like, uh, gotta start a library somewhere, right? One of my, one of my weird. This is a tangent, but one of the weird things that I've always thought would be a ton of fun to do would be to go to like on one of those Antarctic expeditions and be the like resident, because they they bring people from all kinds of disciplines down there. Um, I would love to like document it from a historical perspective and like do yeah. some of that work, but then also bring books and serve as like a local library for the base and just have my books be there that people can come and check out that's always been like a a far-fetched dream but i'd love to do it it'd be so much fun one of the coolest things i've seen at the uh art institute of chicago they had they had this exhibit on this aids activist who who passed away and i feel bad that I, i don't know the guy's name but so i'm going through this exhibit and one part of the exhibit they just had all of his books yeah, you're and it was that. like it was honestly where we're sitting to that fence and like up to like you know past like on that tree probably like yeah. uh, a few feet above the fence line yes yeah, so it's probably no one can see me 15. point this out but the backyard here i would say what is it what is that like 50 feet 70 feet to the fence back there yeah. Yeah, I'd say it's probably like 50 feet. Yeah, and it was just his books, and I was just like, that is cool. That's so cool. You know? Yeah, it's out of control, though. Let me... <laughs> yeah. It's, Did you see, see mine in there? Yeah. That is like barely a <laughs> dent in there, and like a quarter of those are library books. Yeah. I checked out when the, when the library opened up again. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. And I love when the librarians... The librarians are like the pharmacists <laughs> for your soul. They like prescribe you like, yeah. this book is going to... You know, I, I recently checked out... Uh, uh, what was it called? 12, 12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson. Okay. And the librarian's like, 
you're going to come back a new man after that. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. That's I, and that's, I had another one where I was checking out all these philo- philosophical fiction books. Yeah. And he's like, bro, you're getting it in. Yeah, yeah <laughs> put, putting your time in. <laughs> yeah, mental gym. That's what a library is. Which is so weird as someone who, like, has so many books. Like, never go to the library. You just buy the books, which is well, a problem. Yeah, you have research. A lot of the stuff you have, they're, like, really obscure right. stuff, I'm sure. Yeah. And I might be able to find, you know, a quarter of them or half of them or whatever at a library. But the issue with it is that, like, I will probably need it again at some point, And I would just rather have it because... Those days where I randomly need something at 2 in the morning, I don't want to, like, just not have it. So the only area of my life that I'm kind of, like, that weird hoarder in is my books. Everything else, I'm, like, super open and, like, minimalist. don't have a lot of stuff. <laughs> my books, they just, like, overcome my life. So what I've noticed in myself is that once Chicago had the stay-at-home order in place, I couldn't get my books from the library. So then I started buying books. Mm-hmm. And the books, though, what I've realized is that I can now highlight stuff in them. Yeah. And I really enjoy doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't do that with the library, library books. Yeah. And that was the other thing with, like, library books. I always felt guilty, right? Because it's, like, it's not mine. Um, and my books, maybe this is wrong to do, but, like, they also serve as notebooks, right? So I'll write, like, ideas or thoughts or, like, paper any area that I see there might be, like, a flaw in the writing or, like, an area for, <laughs> for new research. I'll cite it down. Flaw? Yeah. Damn. Um, well, I mean, just – and no history is, like, perfect, right? I so, know. It was – well, that's that's just so interesting. So – I think we read books differently. Yeah. 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 One of the big things with how I read books, right, is, like, being a trained historian, I find the argument, like, very early on and what, what this author is trying to convey and what the point is. And then I read for their evidence to see how convincing it is. And – I mean, these, these historians, they're like professionals, so they do a great job, but nothing's perfect. So there'll be areas where there might be an oversight or where they either like, like explicitly took something out because they didn't feel like it touched on that story or the book was like a dissertation that was brought into it, that was created into a book. And those are very structured by like the university of the professor that just got their uh, PhD. Um, And because of that, they're required to take more out. So I'll just like jot down like, oh, what about this law or what about this idea? Maybe they were a little light on this theme here or there. Um, And it just serves as a way for me to think about my own work and like how I can attack these ideas or whatever from my own perspective. Like I said, so the disability rights uh, stuff that I'm working on right now, there are historians like one of my favorite historians of all time. She um, her dissertation was on the long disability rights movement. Right. So I'm using her dissertation for a lot of my work because it's super connected but just it just happened that like her work what, what's her name Lindsay patterson Lindsay patterson and it just so happened that a lot of her work within that dissertation focused on the actual grassroots movements within like across the country and laws and looking at the the statute of like title nine and she actually was like fundamental in this Netflix documentary, um, Crip Camp, which I don't know if you've seen. Highly recommend it. Um, it looks at this camp in New York. Um, it's like a camp for disabled children from like any age up to like 18, I think. And that's the kind of stuff that she focused on. Super interesting, super important for my work, but she just doesn't really touch on like the influence of these presses, right? This like the, the journals, the more local grassroots 
writing that is being founded by either people within the community or like within like a political movement, right? She wasn't her jam, but it's something that I see that's important and interesting. So now that's kind of the path that I'm going. So it's not that she like did anything wrong. It's just, she didn't talk about it. So now I can. And that's what the point is with like a lot of historians. It's not that they like their flaw isn't necessarily a negative. It's just an opportunity for someone else. That's interesting. So I read books. See, I think as people, you're very specific (laughs) and I'm very general. So when I read books, I'm just looking for what is the big idea in this book? And then so I accumulate, I call it uh, puzzle pieces. So, so I look at life as like a puzzle that I need to solve before, before my time is up. And the irony is that I'll never be able to put it together, but it's a fun journey. Yeah. So I, I, love, have, I love this, by the way. You talked about this a little bit. Yeah, okay. I love this. This is so cool. But I've found in life that the most consistent way to acquire puzzle pieces is to read books. Books are like the most like surefire way. I would say traveling is probably the second second uh, easiest way or natural way. But like, you know, some people watch movies or TV or I just, I don't get into it. So books. So what is the big puzzle piece that I'm gonna take from this? And then so after reading a bunch of books, I have all these various puzzle pieces and they all weave these ideas and influence my ideas into like new, it's just like this whole like amalgamation of, of ideas. Yeah. And I don't have the, in my mind, I need a lot of space to acquire this and then to like live life and to observe life. And I can't, if I'm trying to read a book and see all the specifics of everything and see where they, the author missed this point or this yeah. point, like, that's less space in my head for these ideas. Right. So I, I just try to like get through a book and get the big puzzle piece. Yeah. Um, the big game. I'm a big game hunter. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It reminds me a lot. I'm going to just paraphrase the quotes because they're long. Um, but it reminds me of like both an Anthony Bourdain quote and a Salinger quote from Catching the Rye. And Bourdain's talking about like travel and food culture. Okay. Um, and he's saying like, you know, traveling will leave scars on you, but it's important. Those scars, they like make you who you are and they help you understand things better and yeah. you'll remember them forever and they'll always be there. And some of them are good, but they'll always leave that like mark on you. Um, and then Salinger writes with Ketcher that, like, the, the, the part when Holden's talking to his old teacher, his old English teacher, and his English teacher says, like, one day, you know, like, you're lucky. One day you can learn from the people that came before you. You can read, and they've written down their stories. And maybe one day, if you choose to, you can write down your own story, and people will learn from you. And it's not education. It's, like, the, the quote is, it's history, it's poetry. It's this idea of, and that, that always resonated with me in that same sense of, like, making sense of a bigger world through yeah. what came before, right? And what other people are saying and talking about and doing. And it's not necessarily, like, going to school and reading your textbooks or it's taking yourself out of that but then still experiencing the world, experiencing other writers, literature, history, all of these ideas, and growing out of that. Um, so those two quotes, like, they, they always resonated with me when you brought up the puzzle piece idea because I think it's a very similar idea. Yeah, I would, I would agree. It's like I try to keep a balance, and I've been doing a way better job of this um, probably over the last year of, like, I love history so much, but it, it also 
I don't want to be like stuck in history or just like keep learning about history. I want to create history. Mm -hmm. So it's like using history and the lessons that I can pull from that to then work on the future. You know, you you're know? like a historian's dream. Cause that's like why historians write and do what they're doing. We're trying to tell a story that we think is important or that we've like researched or whatever. And our goal is to find people like you who are open to these ideas and are open to considering a complex idea or having their mind changed and then moving on from that, but having it like remain an important part of their like lifelong journey of learning. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're the, you're the type of people we look for. Hey, 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 hey let's go. <laughs> do you know much about Chicago history? Um, I know, I always feel weird about it. Cause like, I feel like I know a decent amount. I've taught like a course on Chicago history. So I, I guess I, I know enough to teach a course on it, <laughs> but, um, it's like not my primary area of study at all. Okay. So anything that I say, it would have to be like. It's been in syllabi that I've written in the past that I have to go back and, like, my dates are all probably fucked up. But, like, I've, I mean, I've taught it, so I know, I know enough here and there. Yeah. It's very fascinating. A lot, of, a lot of big stuff has happened here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Crossroads. Crossroads of the country. Yeah, just, like, just off the top of my head, it's like, uh, you know, you have, well, that's too specific, but you have, like, Irish immigrants here digging canals because they want to get the waterway because they're like competing against St. Louis yeah. for the for the Mississippi. Yeah. And Chicago's a great point with all the Great Lakes and you go through there. And then like they realized the future was in railroad, so they just shifted. Shifted. <laughs> yeah. And like that that lack of fear of like, well, we sunk all this we sunk all this already into the canals. We have to finish it. It's like no, just do the railroads. And then the railroads and you had this like the East Coast was like industrial and they were creating all the goods and products that would ship to the Midwest and the West. And then in turn, the Midwest and Chicago would feed the East. Yeah. And you have this relationship and then you have like the Chicago World Fair and it was kind of like this, uh, you know, Europe. There's, there's always this kind of like chip on the shoulder of America and Europe as far as like culture oh, and yeah. art and... Um, Chicago won the bid instead of New York City and, and Washington, D.C. And then, it like, Daniel Burnham just put on this, like, magnificent production. And, you know, uh, Walt Disney's father was a worker there. And then he told Walt Disney about it. And just, like, this magical time and, and during that World Fair. Do you know anything about Frederick Jackson Turner? So he, he gave his like most influential paper at the World's Fair. Really? Yeah. So like the World's Fair, everyone always thinks about like that big production of it, right? But like they also had all of these other influential, like yeah, the whole world was focused on right. So they didn't have TV. They didn't have. It was like yeah. So just this, you know, professor from Wisconsin, okay, comes down to the Chicago World Fair and gives this like lecture speech on a paper that he's working on about the West, it's like final frontier, right? It's like Americans are gonna push out West and that's that's where the American identity and culture is, is in the development of this new land. Whereas like the East Coast, that's very European. It has yeah. this very European it does, feel to yeah, it, right? For sure. <clears throat> and now as we're moving West, and West, you know, you include like the Midwest and that with Chicago, um, but then you also go into these new territories that we're expanding out. And he's saying like, 
that's where the real American is found, right? Yes. That's where the, like this identity, this true grit of yeah. like Americanism is going to be on these small individual farms, the cowboys going out there and conquering like the indigenous populations and like conquering the land and conquering all the problems that they're going to encounter out there. Yeah. And that's going to be really where like this American identity comes from. Like maybe the most influential American paper ever written. Like you can make an argument that Frederick Jackson Turner is like the father of like this whole new wave of American history. And that was at the World's Fair. So I think what's also incredible is uh, whenever I go to art museums, I love looking at American landscape art. Mm-hmm. And it's these like huge, not murals, but I mean, they're very large. And it like romanticized the West. And oh, it was yeah. kind of like advertisements for the West in a yeah. way. And Europe didn't have that. It's like right. solely an American thing to have these beautiful, majestic, just like, I mean, if you go out West, it's just incredibly beautiful out there. Yeah. And it's America and Europe doesn't have that. So it was like, it's like this part of art history that is entirely American and Europe doesn't have anything on that, you know? Right. And there's like so many problems with that right off the bat. Just <laughs> Like the, so it's fascinating. And I like, I totally, I love all that, all of those like paintings and like the old manifest destiny painting where yeah. you see all these like travelers going out West and they're being led by like Liberty and they're like running train lines and like showing that we're going to create civilization in this untamed land. Right. Um, it's like beautiful art, like really interesting work, but it horribly, horribly undermines like the indigenous populations yeah. that are out in this region, right? Yeah. That are like have lived comfortably on the land and within their own sense of like identity and community for like generations upon generations. And then America's saying, This is ours. <laughs> not only is this ours, but there's nothing here. It's like, no, there is stuff yeah. here. There's people here. It's just not in the way that you think. So yeah. you're just saying there's not. When like there are, you know, empires, there are indi- like indigenous empires out here that have um, their own trade routes. They're communicating with like other geopolitical groups and they're like manufacturing things for like economic distribution, not just for like self-preservation and like use. But all of that is just like undermined within those paintings and like the, the American conquering the West and saying, yeah. like, oh, no, there's nothing there. We're just going to go tame it and it's going to be ours now. But um, yeah, I digress. <laughs> yeah. I went to uh, my mom, dad, and I, we went to George H.W. Bush's funeral, right? Oh, okay. H.W.? Yeah. yeah. That, so that was really interesting because, um, so my dad, he's, he was always saying that he wants to go to the, the next president that dies, he wants to go to their funeral. Yeah. And it, it doesn't matter who it is, but, like, he really wants to go to the next one. Yeah. Because my, my dad is, like, the most American <laughs> yeah. you could imagine. And, and so Bush died. And I was like, well, we got to do it. We got to go. So then, so the three of us road tripped. We drove like 16 hours to D.C. And we get there and we're waiting in line. And uh, it's really interesting because like, so, so my dad's a fan of Bush. And, but there were like, there weren't anybody like us there. It was a lot of like D.C. type of people yeah. that were like Republicans or, or Bush fans. And there's no one out there in like a card hard jacket or like, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, like, yeah. you know, anything like that. And, or like flannel. And we would tell people like why we were out there and they just like, not get it, not get it. Yeah. yeah. You know, or they thought like, that's crazy. Why would you do that? But to have that experience 
Well, we we were like stuck in the the capital for like two hours. Like, what is going on? Because the the yeah. line is moving. But it was right before we went in. Like Bob Dole was there, and he like gave his last respects yeah. to Bush. And Dole's not in great shape, so it took this whole process. Yeah. But eventually, you get into the rotunda, and you know you see the casket there and the, the service people there. And I was just blown away by the art. Oh yeah. And like, it was like, oh, I've seen that before in like textbooks and stuff like that. And it was almost like very intentional. It's it was meant to intimidate. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Like, imagine you have people coming from Europe or whatever, and you're showing off your power. Yeah. As a country, and it's it like works. it's like all, all inspiring. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I've been to D.C. a few times. Done like a lot of research out there, and everything, just like the way the the mall is set up, to like the architecture of the buildings, to the art that is like kept there. Yeah. It's all like a display of what yeah. we are. Well, our our, uh, our boy Daniel Burnham helped uh, helped the the the, yeah. the planning of the mall. Yeah. But piggybacking on that that kind of conversation we were having of like the West. So, like, I mentioned Frederick Jackson Turner um, and his frontier thesis, and that's, like, the one that, like, everyone knows and cites. But the stuff that I am talking about, like, there being empires out here, like, Pekka Heimelainen, he's a historian, wrote about, like, the Comanche Empire out in, like, the southwest. You have, like, William Cronin, who does this, like, Midwest, specifically looking at Chicago, which, if you have not read it, Nature's Metropolis, I like, highly recommend. Okay. And then Richard White's Middle Ground also looks at this, like, this new establishment of a region as a specific place within America that is like changing the culture, changing the identity. And then with Hamelainen, that's like, oh no, there has been groups here that operate in a way that is similar or reflects like an empire that we just totally ignored and like right. overlooked and just pushed to the side. But they had their own like functionings. And I just wanted to like mention Have you that. ever, uh, one thing I want to do. Going down to like Southwest Illinois in the Cahokia, I don't know if, if I'm pronouncing this right, but like the Cahokia, they have these mounds. Yeah, I, I haven't gone. I've wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my brother went to school down in like Springfield, and then I've like traveled just south a bunch. So like I've been past it and just never had the time to stop. So it's been on my list of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild to see though. Like they're just there and they're huge and you're like, wow, <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, we've talked about this before of the dream of just having, like, no no time limit and just travel around America. Yeah. That's, like, that's – if I don't do that before I die, I think that would – I'd be sad. Yeah, that would be a regret <laughs> of mine. Just the idea of just, like, doesn't matter where, you have no time limit, no one's expecting you anywhere, just do your own thing at your own pace. Yeah. And, like – I've always described it. Me and my like childhood best friend, um, Nick, we've always talked about doing that. We've said just like how we would describe it is like, oh, if we see something, just that exit, okay, that's just our exit now. Yeah. Like every exit is our exit. Right. And nothing matters. We're just willing to go anywhere. Every exit is our exit. Yeah. That's beautiful. What do you think about Frederick Douglass? Love Frederick Douglass. Tell me more about him. So, like brilliant, brilliant writer mind 
So is he like self-taught? Like he yeah. he was a slave. So he was so his teaching background, his education background comes from there when he was young, he was both educated from other enslaved African Americans within the plantations that he lived on. And then um, I can't remember her name. What state? What state was this? Oh, was this Maryland? I want to say it might have been more south before. I know when he escaped, it was Maryland. Okay. So I don't know if that was the state that he worked, that like the plantation, because he was sold into a different family. So I don't know where he was sold into, but like sold from. But his, uh, he was originally. Isn't that just a? It's a, it's. Isn't a, that just a weird thing to say? Like. Oh yeah. Where he was sold, like. Oh, it's it's talking about humans like commodities. I could go on this commodity rant for like <laughs> hours. Um, it's horrifying. Like, and there are so many great great historians who have like looked at this commodification of humans and that i mean if you want to go back to that original conversation we were having like all of that stuff like i could send you so many books from historians that are talking about like how humans are commodified and like the process of this like amy drew stanley comes to mind and like from bondage to contract that's an incredible dissection of this process and I mean, I'm digressing, but like that, that stuff is insane to even say. It goes back to that earlier conversation right. we were having. Um, but back to Douglas. So he was also like kind of taught by the like mistress on the plantation he grew up on. And okay. then someone told her like, no, don't do this. Like this, it's very dangerous to educate our enslaved population. So then she stopped. Um, but that's where he like had further learned to read and write and then escaped from slavery and became an abolitionist up in like the northeast and worked with so many like presses abolitionist causes published huge he was going to like europe and stuff oh yeah he was traveling to like united kingdom and presenting like papers and writing like really long form essays on the damages and the dangers of slavery and he he might be like the most known like notable like enslaved writer that we've again going back to this horrible as that sounds like produced within our country right someone who transcended this institution of slavery and then like radically used their place within society to combat and fight that institution yeah yeah there's a a sneaky great museum in chicago the american writers museum and they have they have this it's not big but they have this little area dedicated to frederick Frederick Douglass, and they have his glasses and his oh, pen cool. there. And his, I gotta check it's that pretty out. neat, yeah. yeah. That's really cool. So I've checked out his narrative from the library before, but I, I didn't get to it. Is oh, that okay. something that like, I should yeah, for sure Yeah, the narrative of Frederick Douglass is great. I mean, I have it. You, I have like two copies of it. You just have one of my copies, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, he has a great quote. So John Brown is like another abolitionist in the same period. Yeah. White guy, detested the institution of slavery. And uh, when John Brown was eventually killed for attempting to liberate plantations and, like, slave communities in the South, Frederick Douglass said, like, I'm willing to fight for the slave. He was willing to die for them. Like, it's just such a great quote about, like, John Brown is, like... So do they work together, or...? So they they had, like, worked in the same circles up in, like, this Northeast um, abolitionist movement. All these, there's like a huge legacy of like abolitionist presses coming out of like the Northeast in this like pre and then during the Civil War. And John Brown was, 
he always felt like they weren't doing enough. Like, it was like, oh, okay, you could write all you want, but it doesn't mean anything unless someone actually changes what's happening in the South. So, like, the the story goes is he went to, like, Harpers Ferry, which was a military yeah. installation, attempted to liberate it and steal weapons, and then was going to, like, go down South and start freeing enslaved, yeah. uh, enslaved peoples and um, was captured and killed. And, uh, yeah, it was just one of those moments where Frederick Douglass was like, this man... He understood the cause more than most people understand the cause. Yeah. He was willing to literally like put his life on the line for us, and people aren't willing to do that. Isn't it pretty wild to think that this was only like 170 years ago? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so recent. I saw a, uh, a thing the other day. Someone had sent me it. It was just like a dumb... I, I can't remember where it was from. But it was that a one of the last few surviving African Americans who had an enslaved parent had passed. They were like 98 and their parent was enslaved. So their parent was also lived like a full yeah. long life and they had the kid really young or really old. Um so it was like there's not many of those people left. That's wow. Yeah. But the fact that that can even happen is like it's not that far away, right? Like, no, yeah. And I think, I think what I've thought about recently is how, how like change in history and the future, like it doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's a very long process. And uh, right. I think a lot about Eleanor Roosevelt. I've been thinking a lot about <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt recently. And how, like, so there's this book, uh, if you ask me, and she, she has this column for like 20 years and people submit questions to her and she answers them in the newspaper. And the grace, I mean, some of the questions that she gets asked blow our contemporary minds. Right. But she handles them with such grace and elegance. She seemed like a contemporary person, like a friend of mine, yeah. like, you know? Yeah. And uh, she understood that like to create change in the world, you have to be willing to accept that you might not live to see that change, but you can make all these small steps towards that end goal, right. you know? Right. And so we're now living in the society that she imagined. Right. You know? Yeah. One of my favorite things about Eleanor, like FDR is, he's one of my favorite presidents. I, uh, my master's thesis like heavily looked at his presidency and like the, the New Deal era and this like radical shift within um, like these young African-American grassroots movements in the South that created like a coalition with the Communist Party and the Socialist Party. And at times they had like sent messages to the White House, and this would have been under FDR. Um, James and Esther Cooper Jackson are like the two names that you would probably most associate with the Southern Negro Youth Congress was the group of the name of the organization. And um, Eleanor was the one who like, not only read these letters, but then responded to the letters and then also pushed FDR to like interact with these groups and say like, I understand that politically you need these Southern Dixiecrats to get reelected, but also like you need to understand that there's this grassroots movement here of these like young African-Americans who are demanding change. And like, she's working with them and influencing FDR to promote like this, this, the new deal is like a very, white new deal and she's pushing him to try and add in these components for like poor african-american communities in the south um and 
so many people just like ignore that or don't think about that when they talk about her. Yeah. And like she was like super passionate on it. Really? Like worked with like a lot of young African American activists in the 30s and early 40s. Yeah, she's great. Love her. So then this last question to kind of wrap up because we're we're nearing the like an hour mark for the podcast. What is the role of the first lady or or the the spouse married to the elected official and how can they use that as a platform to create their own vision? Yeah, that's something that I've like had a lot of talks about with some of my friends and roommates. Um because like I don't necessarily know off the top of my head. I've always, I've always thought that the first lady has a unique opportunity, or I mean, again, just first spouse, I guess, whatever, however that would be determined in our. Because that that's what we'll yeah. probably have to say moving very forward, yeah. very soon, yeah. wherever yeah. it may be. Yeah. First man. That'd yeah. be kind of a cool title. That'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty. <laughs> I would totally take that title. I would take 100%. that. I would take that title for sure. Um, I guess the idea the way that I've always thought about it is like, there's no electoral process to that, to that job. Right. So you have the freedom to like push the boundaries. Yes. Yeah. And that that's what awesome. I, and that's always how I thought of it. So okay. when you look at like any presidency, I always want that spouse, that first lady to like in some, some way, shape or form, either promote like art or like quality or something that might be seen as like a controversial topic for a president, but they don't care. They don't. Yeah. They're not, they're not elected. They're not the most, <laughs> so they can do whatever they want. Um, and that's how I've, I, I'm always disappointed if there's a, um, like a first lady who doesn't take a more aggressive stand on that. I think we're kind of like having that right now. It's kind of sad just because I think there's a lot of work that can be done for, especially in like the state of our country right now. That can like a lot of good can come from that. It doesn't yeah, have to absolutely. be. It doesn't have to be political. It can just be. Yeah. Whatever. Like, yeah. Just what anything. Whatever you want. Yeah. You can say something and people will listen. It's a platform. You have a platform. Um. So use your platform. I love that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Dave, thanks for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me. Seriously, like, I love coming on, and every time I come on, I feel like we just barely scratch the surface of like a hundred more conversations we could have. So I'm always around. Happy to come back. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. If you enjoyed this episode and if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a review and giving a five-star rating. It helps other people discover the podcast and enjoy it as well. You know, algorithms and stuff, right? It'd be much appreciated. Thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.